Hi, I'm Kate Kelly. This is Ordinary Equality. You must remember that when the Constitution was written, that women were regarded as property. The struggle for an Equal Rights Amendment traces back to 1923 when feminist Alice Paul wrote the words that became ERA. Equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of sex. So as we march today, remember, forward together, backward never. If you could change one thing about the Constitution, what would it be? I would add an Equal Rights Amendment to the Constitution. Today, the House of Representatives cleared a hurdle to make the Equal Rights Amendment the 28th Amendment to the Constitution. The House voted to remove a deadline for states to ratify the amendment, which would guarantee women the same legal rights as men. On this show, we've talked about abortion rights crusaders and women's rights activists, people putting everything on the line to make our society more just. I'm so excited to continue our work on a brand new season, this time in collaboration with Womanica, another podcast from Wonder Media Network. Each episode will highlight a different woman who was pivotal in the fight for equality under the law. Today, we're talking about one of the most influential political figures of the American Revolution. She was a Mohawk leader whose power was recognized both by the Haudenosaunee Confederacy and colonial leaders. Even though the framers of the U.S. Constitution tried to write women like her out of their vision for this country. Please welcome Molly Brandt. Molly was born around 1736 in an area by Lake Erie, encompassing what we now know as present-day Ohio. Her parents were Christian Mohawks from Canajoharie. Molly's father died when she was young, and her mother remarried a man named Nika Brandt. Little is known about her childhood, but growing up, Molly was likely educated in an English mission school. You'll notice there are a lot of ifs in between the details I'm telling here. Not too much is known about Molly for certain. There's a handful of biographies about her, all written by non-Indigenous folks, and there's very little written about her from the time in which she lived. Unfortunately, it's too common for the impact of women, especially Native women, to be forgotten or diminished in the writing of history. I'm honored to speak with someone who has a deep cultural knowledge and experience with Haudenosaunee history to help contextualize Molly's story. My name is Gohande Horn Miller, and I am Ganyakahaga. I'm from Gahnawage, a territory outside of Montreal, Quebec. I am an associate professor in the School of Indigenous and Canadian Studies at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada. And I hold currently the inaugural position of Assistant Vice President. Indigenous initiatives. I research women's issues. I bring to life Haudenosaunee history and culture into the modern day setting. I look at governance issues and I also perform the Sky Woman story in a performance called We Are in Her and She Is in Us. 
And most importantly, I am a mother to four and a grandmother to one. Dr. Horn Miller is not an expert on Molly Brandt. Really, there aren't many experts on Molly herself. But she has incredible lived experience and academic knowledge of Haudenosaunee women. We didn't write things down. We are not a written people. So a lot of the knowledge that I have gained through my life has come from experiences in watching the women of my community. And in my own research and work, I have examined the historical record on our people. We're known as the Iroquois in the history books. And what I came to realize through my PhD, my doctoral work, was that our knowledge was removed from the historical record. And so what I do in my work is I pull apart that history, that written history, and I examine it. But I look at it through the lens of a woman of the Haudenosaunee. I have learned by example, we still carry out our traditions. Much of what I understand comes through that experience of seeing it from the lens of a living woman and a mother and a grandmother of my people. We do know that when Molly became an adult, in Mohawk custom, she took on another name, Dagunwadunti, or she against whom rival forces contend. Her name as a child would have reflected something in her birth, and then as an adult, it would have reflected something about the gifts that she has been developing as a young woman. Because our belief is that our children come to this place with gifts, and it is our job as their mothers and as aunties and grandmothers to nurture those gifts. A quick note on Molly's Mohawk name. To be honest, we're not sure if that's the real pronunciation. That's because we know this name from sources who did not speak Molly's language. When you think about how limiting English is for us as Kanyakahaga people and people of the Haudenosaunee to describe what we're thinking or what we're doing or our actions, it is extremely limiting in terms of us being able to really accurately portray ourselves. And so the interpretations of us in the historical record it's from a very one-sided perspective, especially for Haga and our language Ganyakeha. There are no nouns to describe anything. So a chair is not just a chair. The concept describes you in relationship to the chair. So our language is all about relationships. Think about how Molly and her life is interpreted through that one-sided lens. Imagine the wealth of knowledge that could be gained by understanding how she described herself and how our women would describe her. The Mohawks were one of the six nations of the Iroquois Confederacy. Iroquois itself was a French name. They called themselves the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, or People of the Longhouse. The Confederacy comes from a long story, one called, in English, The Peacemaker's Journey. According to this story, a young boy is born of a virgin mother, at a time when the five nations of what would become the Haudenosaunee Confederacy were at war. And he began to look to nature to understand how all things in nature can exist, coexist together. And he developed all of the different pieces of the Guyana de Goa, the Great Law, is what they call it in English. 
but it's really the way of peace. The boy goes on a journey. His first stop is to visit a woman who keeps peace between warriors. And he brought this message, first of all, to Jigosaze, which is a woman who lived at the crossroads where the warriors would travel along and they would put down their weapons of war and she would feed them and she would house them. And then they would go on their way. So she knew everything that was going on in the Confederacy. And her story also has been missing from the historical record in its clarity. But she is credited with the first one to have taken up this peace, which is huge. Then the peacemaker went to each of the different nations. What his work did was it united the five original nations into a Confederacy. And we call ourselves the Haudenosaunee, the people of one great long house. And if you look on a map and you examine where we are placed, our territories are placed, they're side by side by side by side. And so it represents a long house. And we all worked and we came together under the philosophy of peace, but we could continue to speak our own language, could continue to carry out our own ceremonies. But we all agreed to put down our weapons of war, bury them under the great tree, and come together under the tree of the long leaves in peace. They were brought together by the great law of peace, which valued law, society, and nature, and was the first federal constitution on the American continent, established hundreds of years before settlers arrived on these shores. Molly was not only a member of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, but an important figure in its politics. Each nation maintained its own council, headed by a peace chief and a female counterpart, a clan mother or matron. These leaders were in charge of each nation's internal affairs, as well as the issues of the Confederacy at large. Women like Molly were important to the function of the Confederacy. They had equal representation at tribal councils, made consensus decisions with the group, and were directly recognized by about one-fourth of the Great Law's clauses. Clan mothers in particular held a final say on peace chief's actions. If a chief made a decision a clan mother disapproved of, the clan mothers could decide to take his chieftainship away by removing his crown of antlers, literally dehorning him. We are not a matriarchal society. We are a matrilineal society, so descent is through the female line. Our women held and continue to hold important roles within our confederacy as clan mothers, as faith keepers, as mothers, aunties, sisters. And we have just as much voice in the running of things as the males do. And our roles and responsibilities as women are complementary. And originally this was symbolized by women as the clearing and men as the forest. So when we dance in the longhouse, this is how we remember our roles and are reflective of our roles. We dance with the female on the inner ring in a counterclockwise pattern, and the males dance on the outer ring. And so the women are the ones who always are there looking after the children, growing and dispersing the food, watching those young children grow, watching especially the young men grow, seeing what kinds of strengths they have and what kind of gifts they have and helping to nurture those gifts so that when the time comes that a chief needs to be raised up like a tree, we know exactly who to call upon. 
we knew exactly who was ready. And so it is the women who have always chosen the chiefs among our people. Molly herself became a clan mother. In 1754, when she was around 18 years old, she went with her stepfather and a delegation of Mohawk elders to Philadelphia to discuss fraudulent land sales with colonial leaders. She was politically powerful and fluent in both Mohawk and English. In 1759, she became romantically involved with Sir William Johnson, British Superintendent of Indian Affairs for the Northern Colonies, and one of the most influential men in North America during the 18th century. Their union was also strategic. It joined two powerful figures in the aftermath of the French and Indian War. They had eight children together. Throughout her life, Molly continued to wear traditional Mohawk clothing and speak Mohawk, and she taught her children to do the same. I think about the diplomacy, which is still very important to our people. We are known for our diplomacy, for our language that we use, the way that we speak. In fact, I draw upon those experiences when I do the Sky Woman story performance and I teach in my classes and I do public lectures, is I draw upon what I see happening in the longhouse and watching those speakers. I think Molly would have understood that. She would definitely have understood that and watching and growing up amongst her people would have seen the best speakers you would ever imagine and really draw upon that knowledge base as a way to conduct herself, shifting back and forth between both worlds. She would have understood her people so well and been able to glean out of speeches and out of dialogue with important leaders among her women and among the men what was really going on. And so she was a very, very powerful asset, I think, and an ally to have, especially to be in relationship with and have children with. You know, in my own experiences now, as a Ganyakahaga woman, currently living outside my community, it's the same process of this back and forth. You are living in both worlds. I understand the culture. I am longhouse. I conduct myself and I teach my children in the traditional way, but I also have to live in this world. Molly and William often organized councils between colonial and native leaders. When William died in 1774, Molly continued to engage in politics. After the Declaration of Independence was issued, she officially voiced her support for the British. Other members of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy pushed to remain neutral between the British and the Americans. Molly asked what Americans had ever done for the Confederacy other than steal their land. In the end, she convinced five of the six nations in the Confederacy to support the British. During the war, Molly sheltered, fed, and supplied loyalists, but advancing patriots forced her to flee to Fort Niagara. At the end of the war, the Treaty of Paris made no provisions for the Haudenosaunee. Little is known about the later years of Molly's life. After the war, she settled in Kingston, Canada, on a military pension for her wartime service. She remained pro-British and pro-Haudenosaunee for the rest of her life. She died on April 16, 1796, about 60 years old, in Upper Canada. Today, Molly isn't a widely known figure, 
but she and other women like her were important influences in shaping the trajectory of future political agreements in the USA. When the framers created the U.S. Constitution in 1787, they had doubtlessly come into contact with powerful Native leaders like Mali and seen the role women held in governments like the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. Yet, when they wrote We the People in the Constitution, they included only white, land-owning men like themselves, just 5% of the population at the time. Dr. Horn-Miller told me Molly's absence from narratives written in her own lifetime is tied to that same absence now. At those big council gatherings that are described by colonial officials in the historical record, they talk of, you know, large gatherings where two nations or two groups come together and they spend days conferring and passing speeches and wampum belts back and forth across the fire. Where are the women in those descriptions, right? Well, in fact, we were there. We were just at the periphery. We were watching and listening to the chiefs give the speeches and making sure that they said what we had instructed them to say. And also, we were there helping to memorize the speeches. So when the time came to restate it back or to deliberate upon it, we were able to contribute to that fuller discussion on whether we should accept what it is that they were offering and be able to contribute what we knew of that speech that had come from the other party. And so our role was really crucial, you know, in terms of making decisions. Our women had a lot to say about how men did things. So if we think back to Molly Brandt and her role, you know, I think she had a much larger role to play in how things went than we give her credit for. But outsiders writing down these scenes didn't understand that crucial role. We would have been invisible to them in those times, how women were perceived to be seen and not heard. Essentially, we were invisible. To see how women had an equal voice in council when we did consensus-based decision-making, the equal role and the equal responsibility to participate that the women held and continue to hold, I might add, that must have been really foreign, really mind-boggling to them to see that and to disempower us. They had to disempower us because we were the center of the nation. And so you can destroy a people if you destroy their women. And so you look at the residential schools, you look at missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. What is that? It's a carry-on from that kind of philosophy. You destroy the women, you destroy the nation. Even though Molly's story as we know it today is full of ifs and maybes, it's still an incredibly important story in the history of the U.S. It's the absence of voices like hers in decision-making, including the framing of the U.S. Constitution, that's landed us where we are today. Who gets to write history? The colonizers do. And usually the ones that were going out on the land and engaging with our people were men. So we're missing a lot. Women are missing from the Jesuit historical record. We're also missing from the colonial officials historical record, early anthropologists, and we are missing from that historical record because their society didn't value its women. 
And so that's the lens through which we are looked at. Our people are looked at, and so we are missing from that historical record. But there is a way to bring us back, to rematriate the historical record. And that is through drawing upon the lived experiences of our women today, and that we still continue to carry that historical knowledge, the oral history of our women and our experiences, and infuse that back in. Dr. Hornmiller is actively taking part in that revitalization of history through her written and oral work around the Sky Woman story. I rewrote the Sky Woman story from the first person as a way to understand her role and what that story means to our women. And there's about 32 different versions. They're all written down and they're from a distance. And in rewriting it, I'm rematriating it. I've infused the feminine back in. So there are traditions like the burial of the placenta of our children under the tree at the house as a way to acknowledge that this is where our children come from, that are missing from the original story. Because we all do that. We still do it today. So it's things like that, that, you know, this is a technique where we can take our history and our knowledge and re-examine it and rematriate it and, and say, okay, I'm here now, but that doesn't stop me from thinking through and infusing these stories with our knowledge. And the way to do that is place yourself in those shoes, right? Place yourself within those bodies and draw upon your experiences as a woman today. That's how you can begin to envision and evaluate and appreciate who those women, who they were. Molly was an innovator for her navigation of colonial and native leadership, as well as her role as a clan mother during tense years of colonization and war. Although the ERA wouldn't come into existence for another 134 years after the Constitution, it was shaped by the vision of women like Molly, who participated as equals in governance and leadership, providing a model for all. We'll be spotlighting more incredible women like Molly in our next three episodes. Next week, we're talking about a powerhouse in the women's suffrage movement, Crystal Eastman. If you want to hear more about Molly, good news. I've got a new book out, also called Ordinary Equality. It goes into detail about each of the women we're talking about this season, and more we just couldn't get into. Ordinary Equality is a Wonder Media Network production. This episode was produced by Maddie Foley, Carmen Borca Carrillo, and Ale Tejeda. Thanks again to Dr. Cajonde Horn Miller. You're very welcome. I've reported other people's stories for a long time, confronting people in power. But behind this broadcast voice, I've hidden my greatest secret. I was in an abusive marriage. It lasted a year, but it changed my life. Part of me always blamed myself for what happened, and I've lived with the shame. So many of us live like this. It's time we change that. I'm Anna Maria Tremonti. Welcome to Paradise is my story. 
available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts.